We are in John 7, as you just heard Elena read, and just to, to recapture where we were before we, we took a break for a week for homecoming, in John 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's at the Feast of the Tabernacle, also called the Feast of Booths. His brothers, just before he goes up, challenge him to go up there and do his miracles, and it says in the text that at that time, even his brothers didn't believe in him, which we talked about uh, later. His brother James actually wrote the book of James, and so we know that later there was faith, but at that time there wasn't. So Jesus does go up, and he goes up to Jerusalem for the feast, and there is a divided crowd. There are skeptics in the crowd, and then there are also believers in the crowd. And uh, so it's a mixed group. Our outline today looks like this. We're going to talk about the skeptical souls that'll be, uh, you can see it in John 7, 25 through 30. Thirsty souls, John 7, 37. And satisfied souls, you see that in John 7, 38. And so, once again, though, there's this, there's this ironic misunderstanding of the crowd, and it's displayed in John 7, 27. Look with me, if you would, in your Bible at John 7, 27. At that, is, at the text, it says, We know where this man is from. When Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. In the culture uh, that, that Christ was in at the time, surnames uh, were non-existent. So my name, you know, being Clint Watson, there was no Jesus Watson at that time. Surnames weren't existent. And so the place of origin often was used. It would be Jesus of Nazareth. And so they're saying, we know where this guy's from. And there was a common belief among the Jews that the Messiah would miraculously appear almost as if, as if out of thin air. And so to be able to put a place on where he was, almost immediately disqualified him as the Messiah. So that's kind of what these people are arguing about. We know where he's from, so this can't be the one. And uh, they also believed that he wasn't from Bethlehem, and some of them knew that the Messiah was to come from Bethlehem. They thought he was from Nazareth. So there was confusion both over that and the fact that he didn't just appear out of nowhere, out of thin air. So... There is this skeptical thing going on in the culture and in the, in the crowd there, and Jesus knows it. So Jesus being Jesus, what, he, what does he do? Well, you think he probably would just try to clear the miscommunication. That's what you do when there's bad communication is you just kind of try to clear out that and get on the same page. Not Jesus. In John 7, 28 through 30, he decides this is a great time to poke the bear. So that's exactly what he does. In John 7, 28 through 30, look at this. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, he says, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. That's a key phrase. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. 
So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come, meaning the hour that he was to go and face the cross. God was in control of all things, even when they would capture him and take him to the cross. So the hour had not yet come. But I want you to not, not don't miss the words. When I say Jesus is poking the bear here, think about it. He says, him you do not know. Who is he saying this to? He's saying this to the most religious, most privileged, most well-taught people in the world. These people that he's talking to had the very oracles of God, the Jewish scriptures. And he says to them, you do not know him. It would almost be like me standing up before you right now and saying to you, almost like a blanket statement, you do not know him. It was about that in their face. And so, this is why you want to kill me. I know God. I am from God. God sent me, and since you do not know him, you do not recognize me. That was the message Jesus was saying to these people. You can imagine how that would be slightly offensive, and therefore many, it says, they wanted to arrest him and seize him. Are they really that different than us today? You know, if you think about what I've already said, they had an expectation of who the Messiah was where he would come from, what he would look like. And it was those expectations that led them to say, some, some said, yes, he is. Others said, no, he's not. Well, what about us? When you put it in our context today, what are some of the expectations that people have that God will be like? And I'm going to give you an example because I think this is a pretty prominent one. I think, one, they say God doesn't exist. That's one. But two, and to drill down on this one a little bit, is one common view of God today is that he is love without justice. The line of thinking is that if God exists, he should be loving, but he shouldn't be judging. You know, he should not punish sin or sinners. We should be able to make a mistake and choose our own path. After all, we are human. I mean, who is he? Why would he be so judging? So God, if he does exist, he must just be loving. But then if we take our time to read our Bible, and we especially maybe read over in the Old Testament, we come across passages where God is clearly judging the people. And his wrath rains down on them. And we read that perhaps and we go, I don't know what to do with that. Because I thought God should just be loving. And clearly here, he is showing his justice and he's showing uh, his wrath. So the real issue with that way of thinking is that if God is only loving and not just, in other words, he doesn't punish sin and he doesn't punish sinners, then what that does to God is it makes him unholy because obviously there is problems. There are sin. And usually we don't think about it unless it affects us 
But if somebody in this room were to, let's say, uh, murder my wife, I would want justice. That's when we, that's when we scream for justice. But, but usually, usually we just want love until the injustice is against us. God is a just God. He is holy. And so, he will not turn a blind eye to sin. He will have to punish sin for him to be a holy God. The world would be a horrible place if the God that created it was not just. And he was not judging sin. It would be a horrible place. And some of you may say to yourself, well, the world would and does kind of seem that way to me, you know. But I promise you, God is using common grace to hold back evil all the time. Or else the world would be so heinous and so terrible for everyone all the time that it would be a horrible place to be. And so God is restraining evil. He is keeping a check on evil so that the world does not become unbearable all the time for everyone. Why? Why is God doing that? Because God is patient and long-suffering that many will believe as seen in our text. Look at John 7, 31. In the midst of the skepticism, you have this, the verse 7, 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So right there we see, even in the midst of the skepticism, there are some that are seeing the truth. Now, notice just in John, you know, we've been studying through John, the text that we've seen, and you don't have to turn to them, I'm going to run through them pretty quick. They all say that Jesus is the Messiah, and that Jesus is the way to God. In John 5, 23, this is what it says. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 5, 42 and 43, it says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. John 6, 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And then one last verse, John 8, 19. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. And so, remember what I was saying is, he tells this group, you do not know him because you don't know me. That's what he's saying to them. You do not know him because you don't know me. And, and he gives all of those and in our society, we want to say, you know, there's perhaps multiple ways to God. And we all have seen the bumper stickers that have the Muslim and the Hindu and the Christian and the, all the different signs that says, you know, can't we just get along or whatever it is. The truth of the Bible, and it's a hard truth, is that Jesus is the only way. John 14 I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's what Jesus is declaring. So 
These verses in John are hammer blows to our pluralistic society today and even to our individual stiff-necked pride. The common idea is that there's many ways to God, and we all end up in heaven. But the Bible says that's not true. That's simply not true. So what is the situation? Before we go to my second point, the situation we have is that the crowds have been told that they don't know God. The Pharisees have been told that they're they're powerless in their plots to take Jesus. Now what? What will Jesus do? What will he say? The Feast of the Tabernacles has been, he's been, uh, that brought him up to Jerusalem in the first place is almost over. It's come down to the last day. He's surrounded by people, much of whom want to have him arrested. And the Pharisees have sent their people to do just that. And this is what Jesus says. John 7, 37. Look with me at the Bible. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If they drink of him, their thirst will be quenched. The question then to me is why don't more people come to Jesus to quench their thirst? If, if that is true, why don't more people, even today, I mean, look at, it, look at the church. There are a lot of people in these neighborhoods. We believe, as followers of Christ, this is true. If they come, their thirst will be quenched. But the reality is, they don't come. So my question is, why don't more people come? And I think in Isaiah 55, you can turn there if you want to, kind of towards the middle of your Bible, it gives some answers to my question. Why don't more people come? Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read it. It says, come, everyone who thirsts. So you you see the connection to John 7.37. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, this is the irony, come by and eat. So if you don't have any money, come by and eat. How do you come by and eat when you have no money? Because God is doing this for us. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk. So not just water, but also these abundant things, wine and milk. And without money and without price, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Now, my question is, why don't more people come to Jesus to quench their thirst? Right here is a hint to an answer. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you spend your interest? Why do you spend your time for things that aren't going to feed your soul? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. So you're spending and you're not getting the real thing. He says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear to come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Listen 
eat, delight, incline, come here that you and your soul may live. We're spending things on things, we're spending our resources on things that will not ultimately give us life. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. But yet, we do not come. Those satisfied with the world see no need for Christ. They are in no uneasiness about their souls. He will give himself to those who come. And he says, come, I am the fountain. And then he says, come, he is the rock that is smitten. Now, when I say the rock that is smitten, does that bring any reference to you at all? Because I want to show you something that God set up over in Exodus so that when we got to John 7, 37, we would have an aha moment. We would have a moment where we go, wow, God did that all the way back there, those hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And let me show you. In Exodus 17, 5 through 6, I think there is a slide, but if not, you can turn there in your Bibles with me. It says this. Now, this is back to our text, this idea of water. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and what will happen? And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, why strike the rock? Because Christ is the rock. There is a foreshadowing here of what is going to happen over here in John. And I'm not just making that up because there are people, and Clowney is one of them, when I read him, it feels like Jesus is in everything in the Old Testament when he writes about it. But in truth, if you look at 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, Paul said Jesus was the rock that was struck and the water came out in Exodus. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. If you catch this, it's really pretty profound because God set this up all the way back here and then he brought it to fruition when Christ says at John 7, 37, I am the water. So in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, it says this. The Apostle Paul is writing the Corinthians, and he says to them, I don't want you to be unaware. I want you to realize this, this fact, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, what he means by under the cloud, you know, today we're under the cloud, and it's the Internet, and we can all get online and do our thing. But for Israel... God had a cloud called the Shekinah cloud of glory. And when the cloud moved, it was the presence of God. The people were to move with that cloud. If you go read in Exodus, you'll see that. So he's, Paul is saying that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Moses took them through the Red Sea. He parted the waters and they all go through. And then when the soldiers are following behind them to kill them, he lets the rivers come and take them away. He says, 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. And here it is. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. So what we're seeing in our passage and in the Bible is that God is, and he does this in a lot of places, he foreshadows, he shows Christ in the Old Testament, and then he reveals it over here in the New Testament. And so, I don't want you to miss that because it can strengthen your your faith in the Word and in the Scripture. And this last part in John 7, 38, satisfied souls, he says, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Look with me at John 7, 38. John 7, 38, he says this, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this... You may not realize, I didn't until my study this week about the festival, but each day of the feast, so the, the, the festival of the tabernacle, or it was a feast, um, there was witnessed by everyone that was there a water ceremony. Now you're saying, what's a water ceremony? This is what a water ceremony was. It was a procession of priests, Levites, that descended to the south border of the city, and there they would fill their pitchers, their golden pitchers, with water. And a choir was with them, and the choir would sing from Isaiah 12, 3. And this is what they would sing. With joy you draw water from the wells of salvation. And as these priests are drawing the water, they're they're chanting, with joy you draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy, you draw waters from the wells of salvation. And the water was then carried back up the hill to what was called the water gate. Um, Different water gate, different cloud. Um, Followed by crowds carrying in their right hand tree branches reminiscent of the desert booths. And in their left hand, citrus branches reminiscent of the harvest. The crowd would shake these branches and they would sing Psalms 113 through 118. And when the procession arrived at the temple, the priest would climb up the altar steps and he would pour this water on the altar while the crowd circled him and continued singing. And on the seventh day of the festival, the the procession that I just described would take place. That's why in the text it says the great day. The last day of the festival was the great day. Because they would do this seven times. The priest would go down and get the water and come up and pour it on the altar seven different times. It was a rich symbolism. In the desert, God brought water from a rock. And here, water was flowing from the sacrificial rock of the altar in the temple of God. And this is why context means a lot. It was in that context, seven processions, people singing the Psalms, chanting Isaiah 12, 3, that Jesus stands up on the final day of the celebration with all of that water and all of that stuff going on that symbolizes him. And he says, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In the midst of all of that, he saves the moment and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's interesting because also in John 6, this just the chapter before this chapter, he did, he did a very similar thing with the bread. He said, if anyone is hungry, let him come to me and eat and take the bread. Right in the middle of a feast, right in the middle of all of this spread out for these people, taking in the food, he says, I'm the bread. In the midst of all of this symbolism and water, he says, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And God had set this up all the way back here. So today, in a moment, we're going to take communion. And, you know, the Passover for, for Israel was basically God was setting his people free from the Egyptians. The Pharaoh was ruling over them and, and building his economic empire, uh, empire, and he was building temples and doing all that he was doing. He was using them as slaves and free labor to get the work done that he wanted done. And so there was the 10 uh, different curses that came on Egypt because he, the Pharaoh would not let Israel go. So God continued to bring curse after curse, plague after plague, until finally he lets them go. And then God tells them, we're going to create a, a Passover meal. And the Passover was because when God spared his people, if you were Israel at the time, you would go out and above your doorframe, you would wipe blood from a lamb over your door. And when the spirit of, of death passed over Israel and it saw the blood, the blood represented what? Jesus Christ and his blood. It would pass over your home and it would kill the firstborn of every other person that did not have the blood. When we come even to the table today, it is an example, it is a reminder, even of the Passover, that God had set up a way for salvation for man's sins. And so we take and we drink and we eat, and we're actually drinking and eating, in an essence, spiritually, the body and blood of Christ. And that is our deliverance. Now, in our text, it says, if you drink, out of you will flow rivers of living water. What is he talking about? Look with me, if you would, two, three, I mean, just a few chapters over. John 14, 12, and we're also going to look at John 14, 26 as we close. What, is, what does he mean when he says, if you drink of me, out of you will flow rivers of living water? And he says it in our text. The, the, living, the, the rivers of living water is the Holy Spirit. So in John 14, 12, it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now, why is it important that he is going to the Father? Look at John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name... He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
And he's going to do that after he ascends to be with the Father. So the fullness of the Holy Spirit comes to the believer after Christ ascends to be with the Father. So what he is saying is, you're going to do greater things than me because you have the Holy Spirit is going to come into your life and he's going to change you from the inside out. And you're going to be able to do miraculous things because of the Holy Spirit of God in you going forward once I ascend to the Father. So he says, from you will flow rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit flowing through the believer's life as living water to other people. Rivers of living water flowing out to your families, flowing into our marriages, flowing into our church, flowing into our community, flowing into our workplace, flowing into our city and our world. So the question is, will you drink from the rock today? And will you drink from the rock every day? There is a river of living water that is available to you and to me. And God extends it to all people. The question is, will you come? The question is, will you come?